Welcome back to the Down the Rabbi Hole podcast. This next text that we're going to study, and this is another one of those shirim, I give the shir, and then that's going to be the main part of the podcast. And the teshuva, the response that we discussed this time, is from the Radbaz, Rabbi David ibn Abu Zimra who was born in Spain and was active in the 16th century in Egypt and in Eretz Israel. The generations before the Shulchan Aruch, before Rabbi Yosef Karo, uh, sort of the first of the great post-gim of the Spanish exiles. And, you know, he was the Rebbe of Rabbi Bitzal Ashkenazi, the Shita Mekubetzes, he was the Rebbe of the Arizal uh, in Egypt, and he was also a major posek. He wrote thousands of responsa. There's a book, sort of biography, by uh, Rabbi Israel Goldwyn. He was a conservative rabbi in Baltimore for many, many years. I'm actually friendly with his some of, with his grandson, grandkids, uh, and. It's an interesting book, but it's like one of those old-school JTS uh, dissertations where, from the tshuvas, it reconstructs what life was like. Meaning it's harvesting historical data from the tshuvas, which is important, but that's not really what I'm trying to do in, in my study of response, as you've probably guessed by now. So in this particular tshuva that we're discussing, which is one of the most influential tshuvas in the 20th century, interestingly enough, even though it was written in the 16th, Chelek Dalid Siman Aleph Reish Tzadi 1290. This is a tshuva about the status of a young man who was born to a mother who was from the land of Kush, Abyssinia, Al-Habash, and a father who had purchased her, his mother, at the slave market. And the woman had claimed that her husband was, that she had been married previously, and that her husband was killed. And so now the question of this, the question that arises is, what is the status of this, of this young man? Do we believe the, the woman who says that her husband was killed? Uh, meaning, or do we consider her an aguna, a woman whose husband disappeared and who therefore cannot get remarried? Now, the interesting thing that comes up here is that this woman, it even says in the, in the tshuva, this woman was black. And the question of her Jewishness isn't addressed directly here, but there are the, the backstory about that community, a little bit of the backstory about that community does appear here, and it does appear in another responsum as well. So, the reason that this is, I think, so crucial 
and so interesting uh, for recent history is number one it was based on this that Rehovagio Seif Paskind that Ethiopian Jews the Beta Israel community is Jewish is in fact Jewish against postgame that were casting doubt uh, and that was the halakhic position that became the official policy of the state of Israel so in that sense it's extraordinarily influential but beyond that now today 2023 and 2022 the whole question of Jews and race and the whole question of Jews and whiteness and the whole question of who is a real Jew has come back with a vengeance and I'm speaking specifically of beliefs within the African-American community about Ashkenazim not being true Jews and the whole Hebrews the Hebrews the Negroes narrative now the reason that I'm the reason that I want to do this responsum the reason that I think it's important to study this responsum to study this shuva and there are a lot of other sources that go into this general category is that what we believe what people believe and what the background of you know what we would call the Overton window what is plausibly believable is something that constantly shifts it's something that there is no consistency over long periods of time that's the nature of what knowledge is that's the nature of how we do things and so sometimes you have sets of beliefs systems of belief that were held by major poskim that were held by major major leaders of the Jewish people and that over time sort of we sort of shifted away from that another example that doesn't really come up in the literature of the responsa is the tribes um, uh, original American tribes right? what happens what's the story the story is that Christian Europeans arrive in the Americas what came to be known as the Americas starting in the late 15th century and they encounter people who are unfamiliar to them and they're curious and these are people for whom the Bible was a source not only of religious belief but a source of real-world information and once they realize that these are not that these people that they're encountering are not Indians they're trying to figure out okay how do they work how do they fit in with what's called the table of nations that we have at the end of Parshat Noah right at the end of Parshat Noah we have this whole list of genealogies of the children of Noah of Shem and Ham and Yafet and the way that the Torah is written the assumption is that all of humanity descends from these three sons of Noah 
And so when you encounter people, any people, you have to be able to assimilate them into those rubrics. You have to be able to assimilate them into one of those nations that appears at the end of Noah. And so if you can't figure out who they are, you got to, if you don't immediately know who you are, you got to figure it out. You got to study it. And so one of the beliefs that became very, very common, very, very popular for a long time was this notion that these American Indian tribes or these original American tribes were actually lost tribes of Israel. They were amongst the, the 10 tribes that were exiled towards the end of the first temple era and that they were banished to the east. And then from the east, they found their way across the, uh, the passage, which, you know, it, it, it was believed that there was this river that divided the Americas from, from Asia, and it was a lot smaller, or that America extended a lot further, or Asia extended a lot further than they thought. And they thought that it was just a question of crossing this body of water. And that became the American Indian, they became the American, the original American tribes. Those American tribes are the exiled lost tribes of Israel. And there were people that said, no, it's not all of them, but it is some of them, like Peru, and is it, is it Ephraim? and things like that, and you had all kinds of, and this was, this was real stuff. There are entire books that are written about this in the 1500s, in the 1600s. And then you also have, and, and major Jewish figures, major Jewish scholars, postkim thinkers, believed this kind of thing, right? Menashe ben Yisrael, Menashe ben Israel, was, he was a, he was a Kabbalist. He wrote he published Svarim in Kabbalah that are quoted by the Chavos Yair, for example. Uh, in addition, you know, he was famous for arguing on behalf of the return of, of the Jewish people to the British Isles, right? And he wrote his book, Nidchei Yisrael, uh, on that topic. In, in that book, he describes the lost tribes of Israel, uh, or he, he discusses the issue, and he's the one who... He's not quite sure, but he thinks that, yeah, maybe some of them are. Even though today we look at that and we say that that's lunacy, that's ludicrous, right? There were no tribes of Israel that ended up in the Americas. For a long time, this was, there were people who believed this. And there were Jews who believed this. So if, you, if people come along and say that, no, the, that American, uh, that original American tribes are from the lost tribes of Israel, well, that's not, it, it, yeah, we might think of that as being ludicrous, but we also have to be aware that for a really, really long time, this is what people believed. And you had entire other, you know, in, in legends and in, uh, and in um, apocalypses, descriptions of what's going to happen at the end of times, that there were these Jewish kingdoms behind these dark mountains or whatever, that were surrounded by these whatever areas, very, very vague geographical coordinates, but it describes what these countries are like and what the Jews who live there are like and what kind of kingdoms they have. And this was stuff that was believed, believed by a lot of people in, in a lot of different periods.
in a lot of different times, even until the 20th century. So when we come to, let's say, deconstruct these beliefs of contemporary beliefs about the origins of the Jews and who are the real Jews. So it's true that we have to separate fact from fiction, and that's really, really important. But we also have to separate, we also have to come to terms with fiction that wasn't always considered to be fiction. And those are some really important things, right? So if somebody comes and says, like, you know, there were Jewish rabbis who believed that, you know, Haitians were a lost tribe of Israel, um, yeah, that's, that may be true. It may be true that this was part of Jewish belief. Right? The problem comes when you pick and choose you know, a little bit from here and a little bit from here and a little bit from here, and you sort of like recombine a set of beliefs, specific beliefs, each of which were part of a larger narrative, and you recombine them into a new theory, that's when you get into conspiratorial thinking, and that's where the things start to go off. That's when the things start to become problematic, right? If you take a little bit from the thing about the Khazars, and you take a little bit from the thing about the, you know, who the American Indian tribes are, and you take a little bit about what people believed about, um, about tribes in, in, uh, in Northern Africa, then you can weave those into a brand new theory that nobody believed before, but which each of which has elements. You know, each element, you had people that believed them. And that's what I think is, that's where I think we need to be, number one, careful. Number two, truthful, meaning we have to be honest that, yes, there were great Jews who believed this in the past, but if somebody believes it today, that can still be construed as, as anti-Jewish. Um, and number three, that it's only by doing this, only by understanding where these sorts of narratives come from, and how these sorts of narratives come from, and how they developed in history, and how they changed and were modified through history, that we can come to some sort of that we can come to some sort of mutual understanding of where everybody's coming from. And I think that that should be the goal here. I think that the goal here should be at least. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about with the millions and millions of people who, ha who harbor such beliefs about uh, African Americans being lost Israelite tribes. I'm not talking about the few really, really hateful people, uh, the people that, you know, it started off the, the hateful preaching in various public places like the Washington Monument and, uh, and, and Times Square and the kind of people that perpetrate you know, terror acts like what happened in Jersey City or what happened in Muncie. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the rank and file. I'm talking about the people who all they did was watch a movie. All they did was they're not out to hurt people. They're not out to they're not out to hate people. Um, they're out to understand. And a lot of them are out to understand their own pasts. They're out to understand what they can of where they come from. And and a lot of this stuff gets worked in. And I think that our job, meaning, and I'm speaking now, <laughs> knowing full well that most of the listeners to this podcast are, are, uh, are Jews and are observant Jews, I think that our job isn't to tell them how wrong they are, 
but to actually start to deconstruct with them, okay, this is coming from, this belief comes from here, and there were great Jews that believed this, and this is why they believed it, and this is why we don't believe it. Um, but the Jews who believed this didn't believe that, and the Jews who believed that didn't believe this, right? And to sort of try to come to an understanding of how, you know, not just what the truth is, but how do we arrive at what we believe the truth to be, and how that can be compatible with what you believe to be the truth, how that can work with, meaning I, I don't want to force my beliefs on anybody, but I think that we can come up with a, uh, a, a set of mutually held beliefs that allow space for everybody, right? Meaning I don't have a problem if you believe that you're the descendant of Jews. I have a problem if you believe that I'm not, that I'm somehow less of a Jew because my skin is a lot lighter than yours. Um, and I think that that's the direction that all of this needs to go. Of course, there's a lot more work that needs to be done in refuting some of the stuff that's just absolute garbage. Um, but, uh, you know, including the entire obsession with, you know, who's, who's uh, you know, what, what's the right, what's the proper color of Jews? Like, we know that there is no such thing as a proper color, the correct color of Jews, and that's something that will emerge from this, uh, from this sheer that, uh, you know, that, that constitutes the second part of this podcast. I've rambled enough in the introductory part, and I'm going to, we're going to move on now to the sheer, the Chabura itself. So the tshuva that we're learning today is the tshuva of the Radbaz. Chelik um, Dalid, Simen Aleph Resh Tzadi, meaning 1,290. Guy wrote a lot of tshuvas. Um, did anybody look up a little bit of who, who the Radbaz was? When did he live? Where did he live? 16th century, end of the 15th century, 16th century. Very good. End of the, end of the 15th century. He, he lived to be very old. He lived like close to 100 years. So yeah. Um, his life spanned most of the 1500s. Yeah, where? He wasn't Was he born in Spain? It's possible. I mean, he must have been very young when. Uh, he must have been very young when. Yeah, born in 1479 in Spain. There you go. So his bar mitzvah, he uh, he was he was kicked out, and he didn't get to Eretz Yisrael until he was around thirty years old. So he was in Eretz Yisrael, and then he moved to Cairo, and then he moved back to uh, and then he moved back to Eretz Yisrael. Um, amongst his most famous students was the Arizal, uh, and also the Shittim Gubetz, so Arizal Ashkenazi. Okay, this tshuva is from his time in Egypt. Okay, and the tshuva, it's probably, it might be the most, it might be the basis for the most influential tshuva of modern times. Um, I guess we'll jump straight to that. The most influential tshuva of modern times, just in terms of just the ramifications of the tshuva, is there's a tshuva from a Rovaji Yosef from the 1970s about whether or not 
the yeah, about the status of Beta Israel, about the status of Ethiopian Ethiopian Jews. And Rovaji Yosef, he wrote a tshuva, it's based almost entirely on this tshuva of the Red Baz, um, in which he basically says, yeah, they're Jewish, you can accept them as Jews. There were Ashkenazi poskim that said not to accept them, but um, Rovaji was like, what the heck do they know? They weren't in Egypt. You know, you're talking about a guy who was Rav, uh, Rav Ridbaz was the Godladdor. He was living in Egypt. He saw them. He interacted with them. If he says they were Jewish, you could be similar on the fact that they were Jewish. That some rabbi in Lithuania is going to say otherwise, why do we care? He wasn't there. He was up there with the, you know, he was there in Lithuania. Um, and so that's, that's the basic, that's Ravadja Paskin based on that. So what, what I want to do, there's actually two chuvas that Rav that the Ridbaz has on um, what we now know as Beit Yisrael. He doesn't call them that. Um, and I want to take a look at, okay, what's, what was his logic? How did he come to this determination? Um, does he go through an analysis of like, okay, this is how I know that they're Jewish? No, the, the, the Shiloh that comes up, there's two Shilohs that he, that he has. The first one, you know, I'm going to send the second one also, um, just so that you all have it. This is in Chelek Hay, Chelek Hay Sun Zion, of the Juba of the Radaz. There, it's a different, it's a different question. He's like, somebody says, like, yeah, I I bought this slave at the market. And it turns out he's one of the, he's an Ethiopian Jew. Do I have to, how should I treat him? Do I have to treat him, do I have to treat him like an Evid Ivri? Or do I have to treat him like, or, or, or like an Evid Kanani? I mean, do I have to treat him like an Evid Ivri and like all the halachos of like Evid Ivri? And Rabaz is like, what the heck are you talking about? Right? You can't, we don't have Evid Ivri today. It's, this is not called buying an Evid. What you did was Pidyon Shvuyim, release him now. Right? And that's his answer. Like it's like you can't hold on to this guy. You can't, you can't own a fellow Jew as a slave. Um, and yes, slavery was very much a part of the Ottoman economy. Um, Cairo in the 1500s was part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, and slavery was very much a part of the, that empire until until the last days of the empire, like in, well into the 1800s, possibly even into the 1900s. So the second case that comes up, or the, it might have come up first, but the second, the, the other tshuva is, right? um, I think that the first kushit means black. And the second one means that she actually was from kush. Right? The... The um, in Tanakh, the word Kushi obviously means someone from Kush, but at a certain point, it also comes to identify a a skin color, right? So if you think about what are the examples that we have of Kush in in uh, or a person that's known as a Kushi or a Kushit in Tanakh, Moshe's wife, the runner, uh, what's the Shaliach? 
Isn't it Domi? Oh, he's a Domi? Malka... I think Abshil. Right? No, Malka Shva. I thought it, yeah. I thought Queen it was Shiva. Shiva. also the one that ran to say about Abshil. Oh, that? That I don't know. The, the one about Abshil or about Shaul? About Abshil, I think. Okay. okay. I don't know, actually. I don't know. Okay, there's, I, I know that the, David gets the news about Shaul, the death of Shaul and Yonatan from a runner who was an Edomi. Um, Amaliki, right, 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 right. Medrash is that it was Doeg and whatever. Um, so you have Moshe's wife. You have, um, right, and there it doesn't say anything about skin color, although it might be implicit in the fact that Miriam's punishment was Tzara'at, that she became white. Um, so there could have been a, meaning like snow white, like not like, not like we're white, like snow white. Um, like Tzara'at white. Um, the, there's also, in the time of Tzikiyahu Amelech, uh, Yirmiyahu was thrown into a pit, was thrown into like this dungeon, and he's helped out by a person named Eved Melech Hakushi. Um, a, a, a servant of the of the king who was from Kush. Um, and of course you have it in things like, you know, Halo Kivide Kushi Imatem, and you have like Hayafo Kushi Oro. Hayafo Kushi Oro is already an indication that it, it, it its meaning sort of slid from being a geographic, purely geographical designation to a designation of of a skin color, right? Hayafo can a can a can an Ethiopian change their change their skin, right? So there, there's an implication that Ethiopians have a certain skin color, right? and in Chazal you certainly have that. You know, you have the etroga kushi, right? A, a black etrog. It's called an etroga kushi, and it's not the only times that. I once had to translate that pasuk, Hayafo Kushi Oro. And so I, you know, I, I, I thought to translate Kushi either as African or as Moor. Right? Moor is like how they did it in, in German or in Old English. Right? It's like, it's a, it's a geographic designation, Africa, or um, Moor is someone from Mauritania, which is today like um, Western North Africa. Um, but um, but it also has connotations of color. Fine, of skin color. So there's this isha kushit it's kush. What's kush? Hanikra al habash. Okay, al habash. Heard of al habash? No. Okay, it's Ethiopia. Al habash is uh, the Arabic. From which we derive the the term Abyssinia. Abyssinia is was you know, the name for Ethiopia, an older an, you know, an alternate name for Ethiopia is Abyssinia. Abyssinia is Al Habash. Habash Abyssinia. That's where it comes. Okay, Shenishbet. She was captured. Ushnebana and her two sons with her. The Kanaota Ruvain. Ruvain bought her. Sha'alnuet Piha and we asked her, Mativa, like what's your status? She was married. These are her sons from her husband, Anikrashmo Ploni, Ubnizeshmo Ploni. 
probably should be Plony Jr. Ubolem Oivim, right? Our enemies came upon us. Um, I guess that's Beta Knesset, right? It was in Shul, meaning because it's already implicit here that she's Jewish. And they captured the women and children, and they plundered them, they despoiled them. And it turns out that she's Mizera Yisrael. Okay, important footnote here. Today, when you hear the term Zera Yisrael, it means go with Jewish ancestry. Okay? Until about 25 years ago, when you see the term Zera Yisrael, it means Jew. Okay? When, the, when Madats wrote about Zera Yisrael... I think it's of. I don't think he uses that term. I think it was it was real Hildesheimer and a, and a, and, and um, was it Rov Kalisher, Rov Sears Kalisher. There was a back and forth between them on the pages of one of the German rabbinic journals in the 1870s. Um, and that's where, like, the, the question of is there any sort of status to a um, to the child of a Jewish father and a non-Jewish woman? Uh, the, the, the whole issue actually cropped up, if we're already talking about slavery here, the issue cropped up during the American Civil War. Uh, there was a, there was a uh, sort of the ground zero for the discussion was a case in New Orleans during the Civil War. But that's for another time. Okay, so these people, they were Jews. Mizari Yisrael, Mishavet Dan. They're from the tribe of Dan. Shoshochnim Bahare Kush, who live in the mountains of Abyssinia, of Ethiopia. Miotuzman Ba'adata. And then until now, Hayumachzikimota Bechaskat Aguna. So if she's Jewish and her husband's not with her, then she's an Aguna because we have no proof that her husband died, meaning her husband disappeared. Miotuzman Zeh, during this time, um, her master, owner, Ruvain, had a child with her. And the son grew up. And now he wants to marry a Jewish woman. And to join the community. Okay, so the question is not is this guy Jewish? The question is, all right, here's his status. His mother is an, agu- is an aguna, and that's how we treat her. We treat her as an aguna. And he now wants to marry into the Jewish community, meaning because he has a wealthy father. Ruvain is obviously a wealthy guy. He owns slaves. Um, I don't know what happened with his half-brothers. It doesn't really say what happened with his half-brothers, meaning his, his brothers from his mother. But uh, his father is Ruvain, and he wants to marry into the community. What's at stake here? What's the issue here? Mom's heirs. The Suffolk mom's heirs. His mother, if his, if, his, if his mother's husband is still around, is still alive somewhere, then, then he's a mom's heir. And in fact, I mean, we're not going to get into This is like a straight-up Hilchos Aguna, Hilchos Gittin, uh, sort of thing about Ne'amanut, right? Can a woman say Meis Ba'ali? Can a woman claim that her husband is dead? Well, can I, can I say, um, 
Oh, if she says, I have a husband and he died. Excellent question. Pesha Asar Pesha Hitir, right? Asked by a boy whose mother's name is Pesha. Pesha Asar Pesha Hitir. Okay, so why can't a woman be believed to say, I was married and now I'm not married? My husband was killed. So, this is, these are sugyas in, I think they're in Gittin. They in Ksubis or Gittin? Might be in Ksubis. Okay. Right, Parak Ha'isha. Parak Ha'isha is in, is in Yavamos, right. Ha'isha right. Shalom. Right, that, that's the name of the parak. Why is it called Ha'isha Shalom? Because there's several prakim that begin with the word Ha'isha. That a woman, because like Ha'isha, she comes and says, Meis Ba'ali, says, Shalom Be'nol Ve'na, Shalom Ba'ola. Right? If, I mean, what, what could possibly be, we say, normally we would say, Pesha, you might want to say Pesha Asar Pesha Hitir, or you can say that there's a Migo, uh, which is, yeah, also Pesha Asar Pesha Hitir. Um, but there might be a there might be a problem with the migo. What's the pro, what could be the problem with the migo? If we know already that the husband and wife were there was no domestic uh, there was no domestic tranquility, but they were fighting all the time. So you might say that a woman she's not you don't believe her because she just wants to get out of a failed marriage. But or that, that means we're assuming already that we know she's married. If we know she's married anyways, then there's no Migo anyways, because we know she's already married. Oh, you're saying that... Okay, good point. Fine. We're not doing that, so yeah. I, I really... I'm like... <laughs> I don't want to do that, so yeah. Um, and the other one is Milchama Ba'olam, right? Whether or not there's... She's coming from a place of war, or she's coming from a place of peace. Um... And the problem is that if, if she's coming from a place of war, then she might just be assuming that her husband is dead. It's going to be the dummy, right? She might just be assuming that her husband is dead and that he's not really dead. Right? So if she says, if she said, my husband died in war, she's not believed. Even if she says, I buried the guy, meaning I'm certain that he's dead, the reason that we don't believe her is because we assume that she is making an estimation. She is making a... She's surmising. She, she believes her husband to be dead, but she has no concrete proof. And then he goes through... Um, he goes through that issue and determines that... Uh, she wouldn't be believed if you can establish that there's milchama. And then he gets into, okay, so what's the situation over there in Kush? What's the situation over there? So he says, this is in the third paragraph, about five, six lines in. Basu, furthermore, even according to the Rambam, this woman, first of all, she, we treated her as an aguna for several years. Obviously, her master was not treating her as an aguna, um, but the community saw her as an aguna. The de Milta, right? And the, the rabbi seemed to agree. We should establish the. We should relieve her with that chazaka that she's an aguna. Even more, I say, so now he's saying his own thing. 
even according to her, she still an, has the chazak of an ashes ish. Why? It's known, it's, it's well known, there is always war between the kings of Kush. Right? There are different kings in Ethiopia. There are three kingdoms there. Some of them are, I think here it means um, Muslims, not Arabs per se, but Muslims. Some of them are Arameans, which means Christians, right? The Armenians were the first were the first group in uh, in the Middle East to like all become Christian. Right? Who and they they have they hold their their Arameans who uh, or Armenians who hold on to their religion, meaning they're Christians. We shave it done, and some of them are. Israelites, right? It doesn't say Jews, it doesn't say Yehudim, because first of all, that's not really the language of, you know, we don't talk about Yehudim, we talk about Israel. Right? And, and also they weren't from Sheva Yehuda. I think, by the way, I think that they're, they're Sadducees. They're from the cult of the Tzadok and Baitus. We're called Karaites. Okay, so he's doing a little bit of a mishmash here. Right, but he's not alone in that. Right, in throughout the medieval era and on into the on into early modernity, um, Karaites were viewed as a sort of the successors or as a continuation of the Tzedukim. Um Even though there were very there are big differences between the Karaites and the Sadducees, the, the Tzedukim, the Karaites did not believe in a Torah Shabbal path. Right, that's. Ah! They're called Karaites or B'nai Mikra or Karaim because they believed in the scriptures but they didn't believe in any supplement to the scripture what we call Torah Shabal Peh. The Tzedukim were accused of not having a Torah Shabal Peh but in truth they had a Torah Shabal Peh it just wasn't our Torah Shabal Peh. You know, we we know that they held things that were not completely anchored in Torah Shabal but it just they had a different Mesorah than different Mesorah. They had a different, completely different tradition. They had a different Torah Shabbat Peh, one that we reject. We rejected, but they weren't Karaim. It's different. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta get your heresy straight. That was a completely different heresy. The Karaites and the Sadducees. Why? How do I? Why do I think they're Karaites? Shari Enam Yodim Torah Shabbat Peh. They don't know anything about Torah Shabbat They don't like Shabbat candles. They didn't light candles at all. Like they didn't leave any fire burning on Shabbos. Well, that's not what he says here. Yeah. The question is, what did the Karaites do? The Karaites may have just not. You I know, think I, Ethiopians did that too. Ethiopian Jews. They didn't have any meaning, so they actually, when it says Lotavaru Eish B'Chol Moshvotechem Yom Hashabbat, they took that. Like yeah, to a bunch of weird stuff because they don't have Torah Shabbat. There's a whole book now by the first Ethiopian. Was that Rav Harab Sharon Shalom? Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I, we were Shulchan we were we were neighbors. We were neighbors in the Kolo apartments here. Or something like that. Yes, I know. This is his project. His project is to sort of build a bridge between the Ethiopian tradition and um, and you know what we call the rabbinic tradition, right? Rabbinic Judaism. Um, and it's a very difficult, it's a, it's a difficult process because they're coming with their traditions and 
we're basically, you know, we're saying like, oh yeah, you have to stop listening to your elders, your Kesim, and you have to start listening to like these guys with beards that really know what they're talking about. Um, and it's it's complicated. It's very, very complicated. And he's trying to sort of like find a way forward. Um, there's constant warfare between them. And every single day, they capture, these, these, each group captures from each other. So she has no migo. She couldn't say shalom ba'olam. She couldn't claim shalom ba'olam. We know that there's no shalom there. We know that there's no peace there. So she couldn't even say shalom ba'olam. Even if we didn't know that they had war, we don't positively know that there is shalom like a migutov. There's no good migo. Fine. He ends up um, coming up with a re- with with several reasons to to be matir that basically. He says, first of all, we're makil when it comes to the when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the the, the bine, to the karaim because they're pasul edus and so their marriages aren't really marriages. <laughs> okay, and then he does something that's char- a characteristic for him, which is he gives you this list of imtim tzolomars. Right, he just basically throws in enough suffix, suffix after suffix. In order to in order to come up with a hetter, um, he's, he's it's characteristic for him. There are others that do this, but not many others. Right? It's a it's 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 a rhetorical move, and it's a cool one. Um, he says in the last paragraph around the middle, "Lo I'm not so concerned. Need a little bit of context there. I wouldn't be worried about Mamzeru. Why? Maybe the people that originally meaning. You're talking about Tzadok and Baitots were a deviant sect, right? They had to have been a deviant sect, right? Meaning that's... They, they're the ones who broke from tradition, not us. Right? Um, so the question is, when did their deviance happen? When did they leave the mainstream? Were they already married or were they not yet married? If they were already married, then that's a problem. Because it means that, let's say they were married... And then they became, you know, they became heretics. And then they got divorced. Their divorce, their marriages were kosher because they weren't heretics yet. But their divorces are not kosher because everybody's pasul edus now. Which means that any children born after a divorce would be pasul edus. So he says, no. There's enough suffix there. Why? Because it could be that they weren't yet married when they when they followed Sadok and Baitos. 
Even if you were, want to say that they were married, maybe the people of that first generation never got divorced. And even if you want to say that they did get divorced, maybe they were because they were still they, were, they, they didn't form a separate community yet they weren't complete up in Carson yet they were still you know like when they went and got the thing when they went and got the divorce they did it in a proper business right it's not like they were a separate community like they are nowadays and by the way that's an important that's an important issue right he's living in Cairo in Cairo there was a strong a well-known, strong Karaite community that existed until very recently, right? Meaning, there's they have their own Geniza there, right? Uh, the, the Cairo Geniza was in a rabbinite shul, right? The, the rabbanim, right? the you know rabbinic Judaism, but there was a Karaite shul also, and there's a Karaite cemetery in Cairo, and there was until recently. It was like a, a stronghold of, of Karaism. Right? So it's like, nowadays, like, we're completely separate. They have their own institutions, we have our own institutions, but maybe in that first generation, they still dive in the same shul. Um, and even if you want to say that they got divorced with Psule Edus, maybe that woman never remarried. And even if she got married, maybe she never had another kid. And even if she had a kid, maybe that kid was infertile. And even if the kid was fertile, maybe they died young. Maybe if they lived to an age where they could have their own kids. And even if you want to say, here's your answer, Rafi, what we were discussing before, that they had enough kids, there's enough sveikos here that each, on an individual level, they can say, I'm not one of those. Like, yes, there are some people there that are that are within that community that were mamzerim, but every one, every individual on an individual basis, can say, oh, I'm not one of those, right? And so it's like, a, and, and you can use rove on each individual, right? Um, to be matir them, lavo, lavo lekaha, right? It's called a parish, may rubuka parish. Called a milsa, so in general, there's no problem. Um, they can, they're, they're not, they're allowed to lavo lekahal, um, and even if all the Karaites wanted to join the community, we would find a way to do it. Um, and basically, the entire second part of the tshuva is about um, is about the is about the Karaites and not about the Ethiopians. So it, it turns out that the Ethiopians, in his entire tshuva, are, are not are, are are something of an afterthought, right? Meaning he assumes that they're Jewish. He's just like, yeah, they're Jewish. Like they're, you know, it, it, he doesn't address the question of whether or not they're Jewish, and in the other tshuva as well, um, he doesn't address. He, he addresses the fact that they're karaim, but he doesn't address the fact that it, it's. He takes it as like a foregone conclusion that they're Jewish, um, which is an interesting thing, right? Because he obviously, you know, he didn't see. All that many of them, um, they clearly weren't um, 
turning up on the Egyptian slave market that often. But it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they be Jewish? Why couldn't they be Jewish? Why, you know, what's the Havamina? And I think that in that, in that assumption, um, he doesn't say it, but I think that there's a good... There's, good, there's strong grounds to assume that he was influenced on this by stories of a person named Eldad Hadani. Heard of Eldad Hadani? So, Eldad Hadani um, was a historical figure. He lived in um, he lived in the eighth century, in the ninth century, in the eight hundreds. And he basically showed up in different communities, namely, um, most famously, Keruan, which is today in, in Tunisia, near Tunis, right? And he claimed that he was from the tribe of Dan, and he started telling fantastic stories about where he was from. And it's not clear exactly where, like, you can try to locate it, but, you know, he says that he was in, what, the biblical Chavilah, Asher Sham HaZahav, um, he says that we're south of Persia, of Parasumadai, but there's a lot of, you know, it's not, it's not entirely clear. So there's some people that say that he's talking about, like, some, you know, area of the Arabian Peninsula, like, uh, you know, like um, a, a part of Yemen, right? And others say that you're talking about the, the Horn of Africa, which is, you know, Ethiopia, Somalia, Eritrea, um, Sudan, something like that. And he says, yeah, he tells these stories about how there's four different tribes there, Dun, Naphtali, Gud, and Usher, and that he personally is from Dun. And he actually, he, he has a halacha book. He has like a Hilchot Shechita, and Tosos quotes it, by the way. Tosos quotes the Hilchot Shechita of Eldar Hadani, that this was, you know, this is, this is their halacha. Um, and part of the stories that he tells Part of the stories that he tells is that they're they're living lives of constant warfare, right? That each of those four tribes takes like a three-month shift, meaning for three months it's Dun's turn to be the army, and for three months it's Naphtali, and for three months it's God, and for three months it's Asher, and the Dunim, right, when they're, right, they, they, that's what they do. They spend those three months at war. Um... And so during those three months, they're they're in constant warfare. Um, they don't they don't get off their horses the entire week. The Arab Shabbos said an Arab Shabbos Yordim Bechomakom Shehem. They get off their horses wherever they are. It's the same Omdim Beklizaynem, but they leave their horses with their weapons. If there are no enemies that come, then they keep Shabbos like they're supposed to be. But if the enemies come, and they go and kill a lot of enemies. You would think that after a time their enemies would stop attacking them on Shabbos, but, you know, um, apparently they didn't. Some of them are There are people there that are from the descendants of Shimshon and Delila. Um... Right? Even their weakest, you know, can take on a whole bunch of the enemy. Right? So, yeah, so they're, they're, they're warlike, right? Um, and it says that there's these different tribes, and they're living in this area, this, this mountainous area, um, and it's almost like, and he describes this kingdom that, like, is 
um, a very wealthy kingdom and a very prosperous kingdom. And within the within the kingdom, it's all very it's all very peaceful. The problem is that there are tribes outside that are trying to penetrate and attack, and so that they need to guard their own borders, and that's what they shift. So basically, it sounds like um, it sounds like Wakanda. Um, at least how it sounds to me. So maybe the Wakandans are Israelite tribes. That would be interesting. Um, familiar with Wakanda? You're familiar with Wakanda, right? Wakanda. What's that? Israelite tribes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. In addition to this, right, and by the way, when he showed up in the 800s, people like people got really into this. They thought these were great stories. Because first of all, like, just the idea of a Jewish... If you, if you meet a Jew who remembers life before the state of Israel, who, who you know, was old enough to remember what things were like in Europe, and I have this with, you know, an aunt of mine, you know, who's in her 80s. She comes here and just, like... The, the idea of, like, seeing Jewish soldiers with a Jewish army is such a big finish for them. Right? So imagine, like, you're... You know, it's it's the eighth century, and you're living under Christian rule, or you're living under Muslim rule, and you know there are good times, there are bad times, but you're not in power. You're a minority at best, right? You're you're not. Um, there's no Jewish kingdom. There's no Jewish army. And somebody comes and he's telling tales about a place with a Jewish army, and it's like you catch fire. It's like that's so cool. Now, there's also a whole other literature. Um, you know, you might call you know. A, a, some of it is apocalyptic literature, and some of it is just literature about, like, you know, lost tribes literature. Now, talk about these Israelite tribes who are powerful and who rule over kingdoms on the other side of, you know, places that are impossible to identify on the map, like the Mountains of Darkness or something else that sounds like it comes, like, straight out of Tolkien, right? And it's like, yeah, they're on the other side of the, you know, the Misty Mountains, right, or the Dark Mountains, and, you know, and there... There's only peace and tranquility, except, you know, the people that are on the borders, they have to fight the enemy, right? But there are Jewish kingdoms, and, like, people like are like, oh, wow. So, like, and, and, and by the way, those kingdoms, they now got together, and now they're marching on um, Baghdad, and they're going to take over the, the caliphate, and soon Mashiach's coming, right? And, like, so it's, it's part of the apocalyptic literature. There are all kinds of stories about that also. So even though this is much... You know, you're talking now. The 1500s is not as much later than when you know that. That's it's much later from when than than when that literature was produced. Um, but there's still a memory of that literature. People still remembered, at least they read about Eldad Hadani, and they had these memories of yeah, they're Jewish tribes, Israelite tribes that live in the south in in sub-Saharan Africa that live in Ethiopia or other places or we're not quite sure where on the other side of some vague uh, you know the other uh, Sambation River was like a famous one right that the the tribes live on the other side of the Sambation River this magical river that um, stops flowing on Shabbos but nobody can get to it because I mean they can't leave because you're it's Shabbos and so you can't cross the river when it's Shabbos and the only time you can cross the river is when it's is when it's Shabbos, but you can't cross the river because it's Shabbos, so they're kind of stuck there. Um, so you have, you know, the, the people that live on the other side, so there's, there's always some sort of, like, uncrossable 
landmark, whether it's a mountain range or a magical river or something like that. And on the other side of that river, another side of that mountain, that's where these powerful, peaceful, um, prosperous Jewish tribes live. Um, and one day those tribes are going to come and they're going to unite with us and, and then we're going to take over the world or whatever. Um, and those, the memory of that, right, is, I, I don't think it's on a conscious level. It's not like Radbaz quotes Eldad Hadani. It's just that it's, you know, that's the Overton window, right? It's in the realm of the possible. Right? The realm of the possible is, yeah, there are, there's a Jewish kingdom in sub-Saharan Africa, and they make war against Muslim kingdoms and, and Christian kingdoms. And yeah, and that's how it is. Um, and so when they came, when they, when they showed up in Cairo, his psaac, he didn't even have to paskin, yes, they're Jewish. It was just it was a foregone conclusion. Of course they're Jewish. Why would you, why would you think otherwise? Right? He doesn't suggest that... I mean, you, you saw that he went through a whole list of stakos to be matir these people to, to marry into the community. He didn't even bring up this... Maybe they're not Jewish. Maybe they're not Jewish. He doesn't even bring that up as a suffix. It doesn't... It's, it's a foregone conclusion for him that they're not. It's like, yeah, so maybe you say they're not Jewish and this guy wants to join the community, so let him do a Gerusli suffix, which is what a lot of people wanted uh, Beta Israel to do when they came to Eretz Israel. So let him do a Gerusli suffix. Rabbas doesn't say he could do a Gerusli suffix. Rabbas, he doesn't even say, he doesn't even have to say that they're Jewish. It's just, yeah, they're Jewish. It's, it's, it's pleasure. The problem is that he might be a mamzer. The problem is not that he might not be Jewish. Um, and so those things, like, again, it's a, the question that, in our time, is the key question in this whole thing, um, because for us it was not in the realm of the possible. For other Arbaz, it was not even it was not even a question. The question was entirely different for him, um, and so I think that it's it's a good it's a good way to understand. Number one, what how do these just beliefs about the world? Right? And it's not just it doesn't just have to be about missing tribes. It could be about all kinds of things. It could be about how you understand the mechanics of something or how you understand the physics of something um, is going to inform a halachic decision. And, uh, and, and, and those assumptions, again, those assumptions will change over time. Um, but, um, you know, but the, the world, I mean, how you perceive the world, it's not even always a, a conscious part of the process of psak, right? It's just, this is what I perceive within the lenses of my, you know, through the lenses of how I, I perceive the world, um, you know, and, and that brings me to, the, to, to a conclusion without even, you know, it, it's almost like an implied conclusion, without even thinking about it, I come to this conclusion. Um, and so it's, it's, it's important to look for those sorts of things, those sorts of um, presumptions and pre, you know, um, and beliefs when looking at the 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 from the beginning all right okay we spent a lot of time on the introduction so the conclusion here is going to be really short i hope that this sheer got you thinking about the question of how do we know what we know and what's the source of information and how in the history of halacha there could be something that's based on knowledge 
that today we would not consider a certain thing, that it's not, in, it's not within our Overton window, but it was within the Overton window of the postgame who were dealing with it as the questions arise. And my personal view, and I think that this is, that the history of halacha really bears this out, is that we don't have to re-adjudicate halacha, that we don't have to rethink everything just because our Overton window has shifted. That there are a lot of things that have accrued to the history of halacha and of minhagim and of Jewish practices that were based on certain beliefs about the world, beliefs about science, beliefs about even physics that became part of halacha when this was part of what the plausibility structure was and that Today, we, we don't think, we, today we no longer think that way, but that still remains part of halacha. Now, of course, there are places where we don't say it remains part of halacha. Uh, a key example, and I think it, it, also, it depends what the stakes are. So one major example would be things related to health and medicine. Right? If, the, if the Gemara thinks that A is healthy and B is unhealthy, and today we know that B is healthy and A is unhealthy, that doesn't mean that you should do what the Gemara does and already in the, what the Gemara says to do. And already in the times of the Geonim, the Geonim were like, yeah, we don't listen to, we don't follow the Gemara when it comes to things that, when it comes to matters of health and when it comes to matters of medicine. Right? And I know that there are people today that are on the Rambam diet or whatever, um, sorry to say this, but like we don't follow the Rambam when it comes to medicine. Well, not if we want to have good medicine because medicine changes and medicine is something where the stakes are life and death. And we don't play games when it comes to life and death, but when it comes to, I don't know, koshering pots. And the Gemara says that this is how a pot will absorb taste and this is how a pot will release taste, then at least on the lechatchila level, we tend to retain that sort of thing. We tend to retain the, the physics, as uh, one of my rabbim used to call it, the particle physics of trafons. We tend to retain that because even though it's no longer in our Overton window, even though it's no longer our part of the plausibility structure of what we believe about the world, but because of the costs are relatively low, especially for us where, yeah, everybody's got two sets of dishes and, you know, it's, it's really not a big deal to have another pot or to have another pan, right, or to kosher a pot or to kosher a pan or even to throw one out and buy a new one. That's the world that we, and by we, I mean I and I would assume the vast majority of, our, of my listeners live in, okay? Now, there are all kinds of other questions that come up in between those two endpoints, questions about things like who is a Jew and what kind of knowledge. And I don't mean science, I mean knowledge. It could be just received knowledge, things that everybody seems to know. I'm not talking about DNA stuff. I'm even just talking about how we know what we know, how we understand what we understand, um, things that have shifted, but because this was how the world was viewed and this is how the world was understood, when these questions came up, that has a certain staying power. And we saw that in the case of Radbaz because the Radbaz had his understanding of things in, in the 1500s. And Rovadio Yosef comes, the, comes the, the late 20th century and Rovadio says, look, he doesn't explain to us 
how he knows what he knows, but it's a foregone conclusion for, it, for him that this is the case, i.e. that the Jews of Abyssinia were Jews, whose practices were more similar to Karaites, but nevertheless were Jews, uh, and therefore um, we can't call that into question, or we shouldn't call it into question, that that itself has, generates a certain amount of halachic momentum. This has been a podcast by Rabbi Ellie Fisher on the Down the Rabbi Hole podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode, which will be on, speaking of Rovovagio Yosef, Rovovagio Yosef's tshuva, his responsum on wine that was touched by a non-observant Jew. And there are some interesting features of the responsive literature as a whole that I think emerge from that rather lengthy responsive.